Morning, everyone. It's just amazing when we, I think, experience before the preach what God wants to do, and it just is all in line, and God is working it out. Um, we are going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 13, um, but before we, we start looking at the scripture, I want to tell you about some research that was done um, that I really believe had, although these guys weren't godly people themselves, I don't know, um, but but they, they had some insights that I really believe were from God and opened the pathway um, up to some new insights about ourselves and how God has wired us. And the one was Harry Harlow, and he started doing experiments on monkeys. So I'm not saying we are like monkeys at all. Um, but he noted something very interesting. When he was doing these experiments and just really navigating the road of attachment of a young child to its secure adult or parent. Um, and what he did, if we can have the first picture, is he did an experiment where he took the monkeys away from their parents. Shame, poor monkeys always get a bad, bad end of the deal when it comes to experiments. Um, but they took these monkeys away from their parents and they put two options in a cage with them. The one option was one that would dispense food, but was very cold and made out of wire and in no way could be cuddled or, or held. And then the other was made out of cloth, which was soft and cuddly, and um, the monkey could kind of hold on to it. And every time the monkey would go for the comfort over the food, it would sooner starve to death than lose comfort. That goes against what we've learned because we learn how important food is, that you can go... Oh, I can't remember. What does Bear Grylls think? Three minutes without air, three days without food, three weeks without... No, sorry, three... There we go. Days without water, three weeks without food. And that is what we've been taught. But in that, we have forgotten how important love and nurturing is. Then another guy, John Bulby, came along. And Bulby had a really kind of not great childhood in that his father was a professional. He was a doctor, wasn't at home much. And his mother was very disconnected from him. At seven years old, John was sent to a boarding school and really had a lack of nurturing in his own life. And so some say that this kind of, in a way, discredits his research, but I think it authenticates it more because he spent his life um, and researching attachment and what that really means, and especially attachment that children below the age of five have to significant adults or parents. And in his day, wars were going on, and so we were, he was seeing children removed from their parents, and he started to research the devastation it caused when a child was separated for a prolonged time from their secure attachment. And it's interesting because we can also give a lot of, there's been a lot of attention to fatherlessness and the fruit it can have in a child's life. But even a detached mother, a mother who's present but in crisis and isn't um, really attaching and giving a child nurturing, it created new issues. Interestingly enough, he observed that, that children that were separated from their mothers had a bit of a, a thing for stealing and accumulating things or, or hoarding um, because what they would do, it was that fear of my needs aren't going to be supplied. And so it's as significant, but what was happening and still actually happens today is when parents get separated, kids often land up with their mothers. So there's a bit more research with fathers. Both are equally important. 
And that is what he saw and studied. He also saw how when children went to hospital, in his day, a parent would have to drop their child at the hospital and you were allowed to visit them once a week. Imagine that. And um, thanks, thanks to Balbi, um, parents can now sit at their child's bedside because they saw that although children were getting all the help they needed, they were still declining. And so a child can have food and have all its physical needs met, but still fail to thrive because of this lack of attachment. And why are we looking at this? Because I think love has got a very light and bad rap. It's become such a commonplace word that we've forgotten the deeply spiritual, significant way that God has wired us and how he's put a need in us that we need each other. It is not a bad thing to need other people. It's a good and a godly thing. And if we look at just in our own experience, lockdown, where many of you were locked down with your favorite people, but still you miss, there's a bit of a laugh there. <laughs> we could read into that, but we're not. Um, and, and, but basically, we were starved of our church attachments, our, um, our work attachments, our coffee dates, all of those. And how anxiety and stress and depression started to creep in. So we see there's something deeply significant about how God has wired us that goes bigger than just, I find my one special person to love. But there's a deep significance in the love God offers and that he wants us to give others. And that is what we're going to be looking at. So 1 Corinthians 13 has been stolen by the wedding industry and we need to take it back. You hear it read at weddings and that's wonderful. I'm not saying that. Sorry if it was read at yours, but that's not a bad thing because it does teach on, it does teach on love. Um, but we also need to look at it as something far bigger. And if you understand, once again, the context, Captain context, if you can understand the context of the Corinthians, you understand that this wasn't just a nice little letter that was being written with the definition of love. It was something bigger than that. There was a heart problem going on. If you were here when I did the opening and had the privilege of looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we looked a bit at the history, you see, if you remember, there was the, the mountain where there was the temple and Aphrodite was worshipped. So love in the wrong form was being worshipped and elevated. You see that also it was this eclectic mix of crazy and wild people in Corinth. And in the church, these people had become Christians and were saved, but they were there for the money, for the, for the ride. Corinth was this crazy place. Um, if you live in the suburbs, and I've seen it in our road, how people just chatting to a few of them, they all started out in the city bowl because that's the exciting place to live. That's where, you know, place shops are open late and there's clubs and restaurants and life is there. Um, but there's a whole lot of craziness that goes with it too. And all of a sudden you go, well, that was nice for then, but I don't want to raise my kids here because there's often a lack of love in those places. And if you think of the Corinthians, they were defined by that need for for money, sex, and power. Those things were attracting them to this place. If you look at the chapters before, which is also important, it then also helps you understand this whole 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, chapters 3 and 4, Paul describes them as actually being unloving. In, in 1 Corinthians 5, he speaks about disordered love. It was chaos. He was saying, this one's going for that one, and you're related, and that's not good. And he starts speaking into all of those. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he speaks about lawsuits amongst church, amongst believers. 
And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks about the virtues of being celibate and, and not marrying and just how much easier it is. And so placing it on a pedestal. And so when you, when you see it in that context, you understand there's something bigger going on in the love department in this church, that they are not known for their love. And so they're amazing at, at exercising spiritual gifts, at being essentially a blessing to each other, if we read it like that. But if we understand what's happening, we see that there's a deficit of love. And so when he comes, he's not this like, Don Juan, single man, I, hey guys, I'm going to teach you a poem about love, and this is what it is, and I'm going to define it for you. He's actually looking at them, and as Pastor Paul, he wants to raise the bar and create a higher standard on love and what the church is called to. So now we understand that, you see, in chapter 12, this actually, this section starts in verse 31. It says, now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. And I found a wonderful book when I was, when I was preparing for this, which I wish, wish I'd found um, months ago. It was Paul Through the Mediterranean Eyes. And it's a theologian who has lived in Syria and Cyprus and, and really understands the Mediterranean way. And he understood and the history, and he just loves ancient history. And he described how this word, the way, was actually like their mountainous pathways because walking everywhere was a thing. And so he said a better interpretation of that actual verse would be, I'll give you um, directions for a journey over a mountain pass. And obviously we see that mountain pass is love. And that is, this is the journey. But you know that when we get to a mountain pass, it's not, especially when you're walking, it's different in your car. But if you're walking on a mountain, when you get to the top, the view is completely worth it. You know why you've went. But when you're going up the mountain, it's hard work. And I really believe that there's a bit of a mountain image, and it's interesting then that he uses those words, given what was on the mountain in Corinth, the Acro-Corinth, the temple where Aphrodite is worshipped. It's almost like a new definition, but that's just my thoughts. That's, there's no proof in that, but it's just interesting. At least when we look at this, you'll just remember the mountaintop and the mountain of love that God is calling us to. But when he says, so when he says, I'm going to show you the most excellent way He's calling them to a new direction, something that is absolutely beautiful and excellent. And to understand the whole concept of an excellent way, we have to understand how terrible it is when there's a deficit of love. If you think about the worst things in the world, it would probably be um, war, human trafficking, slavery, um, abuse of people. The things that are the worst, theft, um, violence, violence in households, and all of those have the one thing in common. There's a complete deficit of love. Love is lacking. And I don't know about you, but I wouldn't willingly put myself in any of those situations. And if you do, you know you're going to get a hit. And so if you look at how terrible it is when there are places that are lacking love, we can also know something. We don't know too much. The Bible doesn't give us great details about what hell will be like. But we know that God is not there, and God created love and is a God of love. So the one thing that we do know is there will be a complete lack of love. There will be no love in hell, and that is a scary place. So when he's saying, I'm going to call you to a most excellent way, just think about the worst thing you could possibly think of that lacks love, and we now need to walk in the opposite direction. 
And so we're looking at this most excellent way, but it also comes as a bit of a poetic poem, a mountaintop. And Craig, if I can have the next slide, you see there that there's a series of preachers that he's giving. And it actually goes like a mountain, so you're never going to forget this. But love is in the center. So he speaks about order in worship. He speaks again about order. He speaks about using gifts. Then he speaks right at the top about love. And then he takes it down again. And it almost is that mountaintop. The new mountain that we are called to is a mountain of God's love. And then not just that, but then when he speaks and he says, I'll show you this most excellent way. Craig, you can put on my very sophisticated slide where you could, I bet you can all read that, hey? <laughs> it was a complete disaster. But anyway, I'll tell you what it says. I decided to do it late last night to illustrate it. I was like, I shouldn't just speak about it because it's a bit abstract. I should put in a picture. So that's the best I could do late last night. Um, but anyway, I'll show you most excellent way. Isn't that ironic? Because I can't show you anything. Um, but, but basically that's how it starts. It says, I'll show you most excellent way, and there's love and spiritual gifts, love defined positively, love defined negatively, love defined positively, love and spiritual gifts, and then he's like, continue and seal, run after love. And so you can see this mountain, even in this chapter, that is being brought forward. And the love that he is speaking about isn't the love that they would have experienced. This is the agape love, and if you know anything and have read any books on love, there are many words in the Greek language that speak about love. This is one of them. We have a stock standard love. They have an awesome word which speaks about God's love. And that love that we are being called to is a willful love. It's a decision we make where we intentionally love and desire God's will for people. It's not a love that comes out of attraction. It's not because you are so lovable that I love you. It's not something that has conditions and strings attached. It's an abundant love, and it comes from the heart of God. And that is what he's calling the church to. He's not saying, guys, you need to get married. You need to find friends. You need to do this and that. We need to all just, you know. He's saying there's something higher I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to a new way. And then he says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And the gentleman whose commentary I read, um, he spoke about when he was in Syria and he went to Aleppo and he had heard about this brass market. And the Corinthians were also known for their brass. And he spoke about how there was no GPS. This was in the 80s. And so he mapped out where this brass market was. And he went along the path, thought he had got lost. And then he said he just heard a noise. And then it clicked, that must be the brass market. And as he got there, it was louder and louder. And he heard the banging and the clanging and everything. And he said it was crazy. You couldn't even hear what the person was saying. So he said that all the stalls were close by. And then, you know, if you want to speak to someone, it's like, how much is it? You know, that sort of thing. Because you couldn't hear each other. Couldn't hear each other. And so, and so he was speaking about that and just that noise at the market. And he was like, Paul would have been familiar with a noise like that. He was a tent maker. He was down there in the marketplace where they would have been banging and making these hollow noises that weren't even music. And that is really what he's saying is that if we do all of it, and this is crazy to consider because we speak about gifts and so often we taught what the gifts are. But we should always be teaching the gifts with love in mind and in the context of love. Because this says that if you use your gifts and you don't have love, it's just this empty noise. In fact, he goes on and he says, 
If I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Isn't that amazing? He's saying, I am nothing, I gain nothing. There's basically nothingness out of this whole thing if it isn't fueled by love. That's huge. Because so often we can get into this workspace thing. If I do this, if I do that, if I, if I even hand my body over, surely martyrdom. If I suffer, surely I'll show God how much I love him. And he goes, well, you know what? If it's not fueled by love, it's nothing. That is a huge thing to, to, to read. Um, and the interesting thing here is that this was a church that was active in the gifts. They were using them all. And in fact, when you look at it, he's, um, he's, he's given the instruction on how should, they should be used. So he's not knocking the gifts. He's not saying they have no value. He's just showing, saying, I'm showing you a better way. I think in life, we always want the simplistic, okay? If I do this, then this will happen. And we want the formula. And faith is so much bigger than that. God keeps us in this beautiful dance of just needing him and not relying on ourselves. Then he goes on to say, love is patient. Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And the thing that we need to also see here is that when he's speaking about what love isn't, and this isn't just an exhaustive list of what love is and isn't, although it's a great one. Um, but actually, if you look back at the, at the chapters that we've covered so far, you will see that the church actually gets reprimanded for a lot of those things. When he says love isn't, isn't proud, it doesn't boast, it doesn't just honor, it's not self-seeking, he's addressed that all with them. And that's why we say this isn't just this beautiful chapter on love. This is a church that is actually getting it wrong in certain areas, and he's needing to redirect them and call them back to what God has for them and what he's calling out of them. And so though it's not a harsh reprimand and it's done in love, it is a redirection. And so as we cover this and and look at it, I want to go from a slightly different angle, not look at everything verse by verse and look at every element of what love is because I feel like it's actually quite a nice chapter and quite easy to understand. I feel it's one of those that we would benefit from if we actually went and read it by ourselves because each of us is on a different journey with this and actually go, God, what are you highlighting to me? Where do you want me um, to work? What do you want to do in my heart? So I feel like I want to challenge you to do that. But then the big question is, this church got encouraged, reprimanded, whatever you say it is, for not walking in the way of love. They were redirected. And how does God want to redirect us as a congregation? How are we getting it wrong in this area of love? If you look at the church of Corinth, there was the the temple and the people and everything else that was exerting its pressure on the church. What is putting its pressure on us? And I want to just look at two very simple areas, a pressure from outside and a pressure from within as individuals and, and as the world puts pressure on us. So the first thing is that we need to realize that in the area of love and in God, anything that's good and godly, there will be fakes and counterfeits and there will be challenges to it. If you think about the whole concept of truth, 
God is a God of truth. And so the devil will try and sow lies wherever he can. He will do it really well with half truths and three-quarter truths and things that, that seem so good but actually lead us away from God. And it's the same with love. God is a God of love. And I don't think that we are as aware of protecting godly love as we are of protecting truth. And just what God has called us to, a godly definition of love. Because we need to realize that there's a lot of fake love out there. There are a lot of things that have defined love in a different way. Even in the church, if you think about it, I don't know if you were the same, if you ever, I was thinking about the first time I read that verse, for God so loved the world. And it was on a poster, and the world was on the, in the center of this poster, and there was a heart on it, and there was no God. And we always put ourselves as, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and we forget it starts with, for God. God is actually the center of love. He looks on the world, and do you know there are some things that are so disgusting that God cannot look on them and be okay? And that might be offensive to some of you, but think about it. If I go from here and I beat my kids up and you don't know about it and I, I just go and that is where I've got an anger issue and I just go and I absolutely damage my kids every day. God doesn't look on it and just go, that's fine. I love you the way you are. Come as you are. There are things he can look at that are so offensive. That is why Jesus came. That is the message of the gospel. God in his beauty doesn't just see that though. He sees who he's created us to be. That is what he loves. He wants to redeem what he has put in us. He wants us to be people that follow him and walk in his ways and paths of righteousness. So God is calling us to love in a godly way, in his way, in truth. Let's not even mix up the love that we sometimes think. And the world is trying to put pressure on us in this area and go, actually, this is how the church should love. And it's one of my pet peeves at the moment because you shouldn't be telling me what I need to think. God is telling me the Bible is my final authority. And so that is where I go. And that is who's going to be transforming my thinking. And there's going to be times where we are faced with going, actually, if we just agree, we won't stand out. If I just say yes, you know, everyone is awesome. You know, then I won't face persecution. There is going to be pressure to conform to the standard of it. There might be times where we get confronted with a bunch of non-Christians and they want to know what you think about a certain topic. And those are the times where our love will be tested and our definition of, am I going to love God first and foremost? So we need to be careful and know that we are fighting for love. 1 John 2 It's an interesting one because it speaks about this. Because now we've just been told, you know, love is this, it's that, it's love everyone, everything's awesome. Now it says this, 1 John 2 verse 15, do not love the world. So now we're told not to love the world. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So now we see the version of love that the world is worshipping is not the love that we are called to, and we don't need to be ashamed of it. It's interesting how a lot of the the ways that we should be loving is coming from the sophisticated West, and that's the first world, and we in the third world, and Africa needs to be taking their cues when I think there's something so beautiful that God is birthing in our country and amongst our people that we need to hold on to. 
And the churches of South Africa have a voice here. And so I don't think uh, we are foolish or, or less educated for the way that we love God and believe in him. And then we go into the whole concept of our own country and the scars that we bear because of the lack of love. If you look at our history of apartheid and just the, the meat hooks of grabbing into people's hearts and telling them that they were useless or worthless and just the pain associated with that, it was a complete lie. That is still something that we carry in our churches, in our hearts, in people's homes, in families. And we need to be so aware that as a church in South Africa, We also need to push against that lie, a lie that told people that there was a different value to different people. There's no way that you can use God's word to justify that or any form of hatred against people. Romans 12 verse 9, love must be sincere, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. If we walk in God's way of love, it's going to lead us into good places. But then the other part that we need to look at quite quickly, we're running out of time, but it's just the love gone wrong in our own lives. And just as an individual, what we carry, because we've gone, there's the world that's telling us love should be one way. There's our history and our own country. There are all these different versions and different beliefs that are getting thrown at us in every direction, telling us how to love. But then there's our own experience of love. And if we have to be honest, this is where I think a lot of us fall short in the love area, in the area of love. Because we've had experiences of love in our own home. And this is going back to what I started with, the attachment theory. Because something that I found so helpful just in my own reading is just how it doesn't stop. The the one thing that they've taken further is that it used to be back in the day, okay, kids need these attachments. Now what they're noting and in research is just say is pointing to the fact that actually adults need it too. Because this is the way God's wired us. He's wired us with a lead for love. You don't need it any less just because you're an adult. You're just better at hiding it. Or you've been so hurt in the past that you've got a million walls around your heart and you can't even get there. But our needs and the way God has created us remains the same to every, as, a, as a child does. And so you see adults coming up who just haven't received the right nurturing, who've been on the receiving end of pain. And, you know, we, we kind of uh, know it's, it's common for people to roll their eyes when someone sees a psychologist. And, and they start looking at their past and they start looking at their parents and everyone's like, oh, it's so textbook. Think about it. That a child who has been in a war situation, we know that they traumatize. Something big has happened to them. They've seen things that as a child they shouldn't. But think about a parent who should be, who's a child's world, who's their everything, who just destroys a child through neglect, through destructive words, through the you're not good enough, this isn't good enough, through not giving nurturing and attention at the same time, isn't it as traumatic? And in fact, I think I've even said this before, but they've researched with kids and they've done in war situations, they've done better staying in the hostile situation with their parent than going to a safe place and being separated. So that shows that, that maybe even the trauma you've been carrying that you think, I'm just being ridiculous. It was just my mom and dad. It's never just your mom and dad. That was your world. And so people are carrying pain in their hearts and lives. They develop coping mechanisms. And so when you see people that pride themselves in the fact of, I'm a self-made man or woman. I don't need anyone. I'm an island. I just don't need people. I'm really like, okay, it's not how God's wired you. 
When you see patterns in your own life of I fear rejection, I fear people, I, I feel like I can't go near them. That's not how God has wired you. He's wired you in love to be connected. When you see people who have such anxiety around relationships or rejection or can't even share their own opinion and the fact that people might actually turn on them, that is not someone insecure in the love that God has put in them. If I can get the next slide, there are really two, when we, when we speak about the, the pain in adulthood, two questions that, that we generally are subconsciously asking ourselves, and it's, am I worthy of love, and are others capable of loving me? And I can't turn this into a psych lesson, and I'm not an expert here, but I found these things so um, helpful, and you're welcome to Google it in your own time, and it's really interesting stuff, even just to upskill you. You might find, like, hey, I'm absolutely healthy in the area of love, but just to help you to deal with other people, because this helped me to love and understand other people and to deal with my own issues, but if you Attachment Theory for Adults, and I found a wonderful book that I still need to read before I recommend, but just on how it looks in faith and in faith communities in our journey with God. But basically, you have secure attachment. This is your person who, who has just walked through life and has these secure attachments or has had a measure of healing and is just going, actually, I'm, I'm completely secure in it. Then you get your person who's anxiously attached, and that would be your person that in relationships fears being abandoned, needs constant validation. Um, you've got your fearful avoidant, which person that fears rejection. And fears people, has a hard time trusting people. And then you've got your dismissive avoidant, people who avoid intimacy and vulnerability and have commitment issues, and they guard their heart. So there's so much more. This is just a dip your toe in. But I just want to show you how we think people are just the way they are, and we forget that they're these patterns that are formed and emerged in their lives because of the way people have treated them, and especially their significant others. And then the crazy thing is we think we'll never be like that. And then we find ourselves being those sort of parents, those people to our friends, those people to our spouses. And we see that there's something bigger here, that God is reaching out and he's saying, I don't want you to live your whole life like this. I want you to get some help. And if you feel like you need help in this area, there's so many of us who would love to point you in the right directions. This is an area where God had to heal me and I went for counseling and just for me, rejection was a huge thing. And how it links to 1 Corinthians 13 is that if, if the devil can cripple me and make me fear people and fear others, I'm going to withdraw from people. And I'm not going to want to minister to people. So do you see how in the church, what is happening in your heart actually does weigh in? You are a part of this church. This is the priesthood of all believers. And you are bringing that in. And so if you can't even do it for yourself, do it for the church. Because God has designed you and he's calling you to something better. And he wants to see you healed in this area of your life. And that's why I feel it's so significant that when we look at 1 Corinthians 13, I think for many of us, we stand here and we go, this is wonderful. There's a journey of love. There are all those things that love is and isn't. But I can't even get out of the chains that are holding me back. And so we need to go that maybe God has brought you, brought you here today to say, I love you so much that I want to pour my love out in your heart. I want to use this community to heal you, and we should be that community to each other. And maybe you're here and you're going, I feel completely whole. Please lead us in this. We need the people who have gone through the journey and had the healing to move amongst us and be a blessing. 
Because I know in my journey, especially when I was, was a teenager and had all these fears, just people that were emotionally whole and spiritually whole who took me and said, hey, and just love me the way I was, that was important for me because I couldn't take that first step. So maybe God has placed you here as an emotionally whole, loved person who has no issues to take those steps and help everyone else. And so as we look at this community that we are, I just want to end by reading reading a few verses. And the one is that maybe you find yourself with this hard heart. Maybe you are that avoidant person. There's a verse in Ezekiel that's so beautiful. It says, God will take that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. He can do it. Jeremiah 31 verse 3. God says, I've loved you with an everlasting love and I've drawn you with loving kindness. He's taken that first step. That song in the prayer, um, that, that's quite well known, but those words that are so beautiful and just seems to resonate with so many is just hearing him say, he is for you. He is for you. He is for you. He is for you. Isn't so beautiful? Connect church. He is for us. His love is so complete. He is drawing us with his loving kindness. And then 1 John 4 verse 18. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. I think maybe you've grown up in a household that was full of punishment and you were full of fear and you never experienced your parents' love. And the thing now, as we stand with adults, as leaders in the church and leaders in our community, leaders in our home, we've had a baton passed down to us. It's like a relay. What are we passing down to the next generation, to our kids, in our homes, in our church? Because this is significant. God loves his church too much to let us stay this way. So if you feel like there's a work that God wants to do, we're just going to also trust that he's going to do it. And so if I can have the worship team up, we're just going to go into a bit of ministry time. Also, it's 20 past. So if you need to pick your kids up while, we, while we're worshiping, you're welcome to go and pick your kids up. But also to open the space up that this might be a space where God is speaking to us and we might need some ministry. And so in the worship time, we're also going to open it up just for some prayer for us to minister to each other and to not stop here. Let's pray. Lord, as we we see the church in Corinth and we see the challenges in this area of love, when we see the world having its challenges, and even in our own lives, Lord, we see this as an area where we need the love, our love to look like yours. A love that doesn't have fear, that's perfect love. We thank you that you draw us with your loving kindness. That everything in your word points to the love that you have for us, Lord. That's so much bigger than what we can comprehend. Thank you that your love speaks something better of our lives than every lie, every experience, every pain that we carry. But Lord, I especially want to pray for those that are still carrying pain in their hearts, Lord. We don't want to be held back, Lord. We want the chains to break. We want there to be freedom in our hearts, Lord, so we can love the way you do. Lord, we want to be the parents that you've called us to, that don't rule in fear or hurt, but walk in love. 
We want to be the adults that you have called us to, that don't walk through life in the areas where we work and lead. And push people away, hold them at arm's length. We want to love. And Lord, most importantly, as a church and a community, when we see this chapter and just the church of Corinth and where they got it wrong, Lord, we don't want you. Show us where we need to work and the areas we need to work, Lord, so we can be a church that really represents who you are. Because that's what it boils down to, Lord. It's just that we want to love like you do. We want to continue the work of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen.